agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined, as always, by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase Law School. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Oh, it's great to be back, Trey. You know, it's always a lot of fun to do the show, but before we get started, I do want to note uh, that Mike is still doing a bonus series for the Politics Guys that comes out on Wednesday, uh, where he hosts a show with six Northern Kentucky University students. Uh, and they're doing a podcast on the election. And it's a pretty cool deal. It's really neat that he gets to do it. Uh, and, that, and that is available to everyone. So if, you, if as listeners, if you haven't had a chance to check it out, every Wednesday, we have this bonus election show. And that is for all listeners, not just our supporters. Although we continue for our Patreon supporters to have a bonus show as, Mike and, uh, as Ken and I will be uh, releasing in just a moment. So, Ken, I think the biggest story for me, and, and, and you know, we've talked about this before the show went live, uh, is the Department of Justice's uh, intervention into the Carroll, New York defamation lawsuit against President Donald Trump. And what many outlets, including the New York Times, are calling, quote, highly unusual legal moves, the DOJ is moving to take over the defense of President Donald Trump in a defamation lawsuit filed by Jean Carroll, who alleged that Trump raped her in the 1990s. Trump failed earlier in the year to have the lawsuit stopped on the grounds that he was immune from civil lawsuits in state court. As a matter of fact, Ken and I, we we took that particular issue up uh, a few weeks ago. Then this week, the DOJ moved to get involved, arguing that Trump's denials are in fact a part of his official duties as president, and therefore he was acting as a government employee. Now, there are three statements in question here. Two, uh, um, President Trump made in response to uh, press queries, and one is actually a press statement that he releases from the White House. Um, And so what's uh, unique about this is the question at the moment isn't being litigated about the content of the statements. In other words, is, is this or is this not defamation? This is kind of a way to put it off. Um, but rather, one, can the DOJ, should the DOJ take it up? Uh, and two, if they did, then are these in fact Trump acting within his capacity as president? Now, why does all that matter? Well, because besides the point that it costs a million, the American public money and time for a private lawsuit, it also brings to bear the issue of con- the concept of sovereign immunity. The short version of sovereign immunity is this. Uh, the state is immune from civil suit unless it allows itself to be sued. So since this would move the case from state court to federal court, it means that Congress would have to have passed a law that says it can be sued. And right now, there is no permission for private individuals to sue the United States for defamation, and therefore the case would probably end. Now, I want to mention that uh, online, Jay has argued that we need to take a look at a case called Bar v. Mado, uh, which comes in 1959. Uh, and he argues that this is, means that this isn't just something that Trump made up. In other words, that he, the DOJ should be taking this case up or at least litigating it. Now, you can correct me uh, on this. I'm just a political science kin. Uh, but what's your take on the case? Well, let me start with just since you said I can correct you one terminological correction. I think oh, on please. the substance, you had everything right. But um, terminologically, there would be sovereign immunity wouldn't be the correct term here. Um, sovereign immunity is the term when the government is sued. Um, the, the government wasn't sued. The president was sued. Um, and the president isn't the government. He's a person. And he was sued in his personal capacity. But but there is um, no, a what similar. I have a question about that then, because what, yeah, yeah. what I was trying to ask was or I was kind of maybe stating and maybe I'm right or maybe I'm wrong. If the DOJ is successful in taking over the case and the United States becomes the defendant in the case, wouldn't yeah. then sovereign immunity apply? In other words, I'm, I'm positing potentially that the DOJ wants to take this over so as to kill it via sovereign immunity yeah. once you well, substitute what, Trump for the yeah. United States. Well, that's where I was about to say you were right on the substance on that, but wrong on the, on the terminology. So, um, yeah, that, that is the effect of what would happen. But the terminology is a little bit different. Um, the, the United States would never be substituted as the defendant. Um, so the the so sovereign immunity would never apply as a terminological matter. But what would happen is um, 
the the United States under a statute called the Westfall Act um, can the Justice Department can defend individual um, uh, employees of the United States government if they're individually sued in their individual capacity for um, committing torts while they're acting within the scope of their employment. Now that doesn't substitute the United States as a as a defendant. It just um, allows the um, United States to to provide the um, the resources for the legal defense. Um, but in the case of the president, there is a separate doctrine. It's not called sovereign immunity. It's called presidential absolute immunity. And uh, president presidential presidents are absolutely immune from all civil liability, um, including against state law tort claims um, for for actions that they take within the scope of their employment. So the test would be the same if this was an action within the um, scope of President Trump's employment. Then under the Westfall Act, that would mean that the Justice Department could defend him. And under the separate doctrine of presidential absolute immunity, um, that would also mean that um, he would have an absolute immunity. That would be his defense. So, so I think the, 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 functionally, it comes back around to the, the way you described it is the bottom line is right. But the terminology is just a little bit different there. Now, I'd like to explain. Mean, I know that's a kind of a wonky point, but I'd like to explore that for just a second, because uh, you know, where I had been doing that, uh, Barbara McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan, and she's a former U.S. attorney um, for the Eastern Dish, uh, District of Michigan. And, and, and she is actually the one uh, who put me on to thinking about the fact that what the DOJ is attempting to do, um, as a matter of fact, in her words, um, uh, quote, substitute the United States for Donald Trump. Um, and as, as a result, uh, you know, go to the concept of sovereign immunity as opposed to what you were calling as uh, presidential immunity. So, uh, so it sounds like that you disagree with that. So, I'd, yeah. I'd actually like to I'd like to hear a little bit about that because that is, I think, in and of itself, interesting. So, you uh, so yeah. could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I guess um, I, you know the the, um, the I haven't seen Barr's motion yet, so maybe he did ask for that. But that would be um, that would be going beyond. That would be yet another way he'd be going beyond what the um, what the what the settled precedents are. So the main the main case on absolute presidential immunity, which is what I was talking about, is a mm-hmm. case called um, Nixon versus Nixon versus Fitzgerald, and it, it's it's from the um, early seventies when President Nixon was president. And what happened was um, Fitzgerald was a guy who was in the Navy, and he was a Navy uh, whistleblower, and he liked to go to Congress and testify about all the fraud, waste, and abuse in the military and, and testify at congressional hearings about this. And mm-hmm. this was uh, embarrassing President Nixon. And so President Nixon, um, seemingly to retaliate against Fitzgerald, um, he started, um, uh, or at least allegedly started, um, this, this practice where whenever there was going to be a base closing or something like that, he would first transfer Fitzgerald there and then he would close the place down, and, and he sort of turned Fitzgerald into the the typhoid Mary of the Navy, and uh, and and Fitz, Fitzgerald sued him personally for that. Um, now, in that case, um, the Justice Department did defend uh, President Nixon because ordering military transfers and ordering uh, base closings are acts within the scope of a president's employment. They're not just personal acts; they're official acts. So the the, the Justice Department did defend President Nixon. And they did successfully argue um, that presidents should get an absolute presidential immunity. So that doctrine comes from this case of Nixon versus Fitzgerald. It wasn't really clear before that. And, and, and yet it, it applies only um, in tort suits that deal with um, official acts. And the, the, the theory of the uh, Fitzgerald court was that um, the president, when he's trying to make decisions on behalf of the American people, his his decision making shouldn't be influenced by the question of um, can he well, be sued? One thing, am I going to be sued? Right, I can do one thing that's right for the people, but I'm going to get sued, or I could do the other thing that's wrong for the people, but at least nobody will sue me. You know that that kind of thing shouldn't influence his decision making. So for that reason, the Fitzgerald Court said that as long as a president is engaged in an official act, the president gets this absolute presidential immunity. Now later in the Paula Jones case with President Clinton, um, the Supreme Court cut back on that a little bit. And they said they still stood by the Nixon v. Fitzgerald rule, but they but they said, but that clearly does only apply to official acts conducted within the scope of uh, presidential employment and not to unofficial uh, personal acts committed by the president, but not related to his employment. And so President Nixon, uh, I'm sorry, President Clinton, Clinton um, uh, failed to get that immunity from the Paul Jones lawsuit because, because he was acting in a private, Jones, a private citizen. 
in a private capacity. It wasn't part of his job to sexually harass Paula Jones, and that wasn't uh, an exercise of any of his official powers. That was just a personal act. So it differed that way from what um, Nixon did, where what Nixon did may have been tortious and abusive and wrongful, um, but it was all uh, involving exercises of his official powers within the scope of his official um, employment. So, so that's the line that was drawn between those cases. Now, really, um, uh, um, in, in, the, in both cases, Nobody substituted the United States as a as a defendant. And right. So I was, was going to ask you about that. Continue. Surprising. Yeah. Yeah. It did, did not happen. I mean, the, both Nixon versus Fitzgerald um, and Clinton versus Jones. Well, we call them Nixon versus Fitzgerald and Clinton versus Jones. We don't the call United them States Fitzgerald is the, versus is the, the United States yeah. or Clinton versus the, or Jones versus the United States. Right. So that never happened. And I'm, I'm really unaware of, of any case where that ever happened. That could happen um, in theory uh, in, in uh, um, Westfall Act cases. Um, I guess if the United States um, was um, acknowledging that, um, you know, if 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 some harm was committed by an employee within the scope of their employment, the United States would pay the bill. I think that comes up more often when there's another statute brought to bear called the Federal Tort Claims Act. And that Mm -hmm. uh, applies only only to negligent torts, not to intentional torts like defamation or sexual harassment. But say say a postal worker out on his postal rounds gets into a fender bender and hits somebody else's car. Right. And, and, and get sued. Um, since that would be a negligent tort, then under the Federal Tort Claims Act, the United States could agree that if there is tort liability, then the it's United them. States will accept that liability. Right. Right. So that the postal worker themselves won't have to pay that liability. But the Federal Tort Claims Act doesn't apply to intentional torts. So I actually don't see what the basis would be for substitution here, because the allegation here is only um, an intentional tort, which doesn't fall within the Federal Tort Claims Act and not not a negligent tort, which could. Well, in that case, though, if you were substituting the United States and it does not apply, I guess that's what I was kind of getting at. Wouldn't that be a way of attempting to once again simply kill the suit because there isn't an act of Congress that allows um, for that kind of suit? Well, there wouldn't have to be an act of Congress because it's a state law suit. There's an act of New York law. Now, but if, um, now so- if the uh, DOJ uh, takes over, wouldn't that then shift it to federal court? Because you're saying, yes, it would the, shift it yeah, to, right, right. It would shift it to federal court, but it wouldn't shift it to. There's no, there, there's no federal law that would that would um, provide any kind of immunity here, other than the constitutional doctrine I talked about earlier from um, from from Nixon versus Fitzgerald. So, um, and that and that, so it shouldn't really matter whether it's in federal court or in state court in terms of what law applies. The 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 New York libel law applies in both federal court and state court. And that, and also the doctrine of absolute presidential immunity um, from Nixon versus Fitzgerald as, as, as also modified Clinton v. Jones that applies in both also. So so the venue really shouldn't make a, that much of a difference in terms of what substantive law applies. Um, the, the 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 plaintiff can bring this case under New York libel law in either court, and it should move forward unless um, the unless it falls within the president's absolute immunity. Um, uh, which again should apply in either in either court, but but I believe that would defend, depend on whether the president's actions at issue were within the scope of his employment, and I don't see how you make the argument that that they were. So well, now that's the, you know the next big question in uh, in the story and obviously in the case, which is <clears throat> which whichever of the two legal doctrines is, is being done here, and, and that uh, to me I find that interesting all by itself, uh, but. The question becomes, is President Trump acting in his capacity as uh, as president? So let me kind of take I mean, you've already kind of stated your position there, Ken. You're saying, look, I don't see how this could be. So let me take devil the devil's advocate position and say, well, but look, Ken, for at least two of these statements, he he's in the series. He's at a press conference. He's responding to uh, questions about the coronavirus. He's responding to other kinds of questions. And then peppered throughout these questions uh, are a couple of questions uh, about this defamation case and about Carol herself. Uh, and he responds in that context of, you know, of giving a White House uh, a press conference. And so doesn't that clearly then say, well, can he really be moving from his presidential duties on questions one and two? And then not be in a presidential duty on questions three and six. So, what's your response to that? At least, at least for those two. Yeah. So, so the question is whether a president is acting within the scope of his employment when he gives a press conference. Yes. Um, and, on and, a particular yeah. question, for example. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I don't know that there's any precedent on that, but if with presidents, but there certainly is with Congress, right? So Congress has a different kind of immunity. It, it comes from different sources, but the Constitution has a clause called the Speech or Debate Clause, and it says that um, members of Congress, I think the old language of the Constitution is members of Congress shall not be questioned in any other place about um, the, anything they say in speech or debate in, in Congress. But the way that's been interpreted by all modern courts is that members of Congress have an absolute immunity for anything they say on the floor of Congress. They can't mm-hmm. be sued for anything they say on the floor of Congress. And there's plenty of cases out there about, well, does that immunity apply uh, when they give press conferences outside the floor of Congress or when they send out- They're on the steps of the Capitol or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and the answer is always, um, no, the immunity doesn't extend to that. Um, uh, the, the, Senator Proxmire used to send out something in his constituent newsletter called the Golden Fleece Awards, where he would um, always try to point out fraud, waste, and abuse, and he would identify like the uh, what he thought was the most unmeritorious recipient of a government grant that month, and and uh, um, and and he uh, uh, and this was part of his regular constituent newsletter thing, and um, not the not was, the uh, worst idea in the world. I can't, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but he did get uh, he got sued for libel a few times based on that by the people who he identified who were the grant recipients, uh-huh. and 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 he was he was never able to uh, assert the speech or debate clause immunity in those cases because. Um, Communicating with his constituents from outside um, the, the 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 floor of the Capitol um, was was deemed uh, not to fall within the speech or debate immunity. So now again, that's a different part of the Constitution. The doctrines could be different, but I, I think it's the best model here. You so know, for so, thinking about so where do you think then that a presidential press conference is more like a congressperson outside of Congress? interacting either with the constituency or with the press than it is with a statement. Because again, there's not quite an analogous for a president. You know, there is no chamber floor, right? Um, Right. So so what would be the acts then? How how would you define the line? So if you were going to be the Supreme Court and you were going to say, clearly it sounds like you're going to say, well, look, press conferences don't count because we're going to take a look at, at Congress. Would anything or would that be more reserved to the actual official statements coming from the White House that carry some kinds of force of law, say, like, for an exe- example, an executive action or um, a policy declaration. You know, yeah, I take I take your point. Actually, it's a good point because you're going to make me back off slightly from something I just said. Um, so so I, I think that um, a presidential press conference might um, be a part of a president's official duties. I think a, a president does have, um, you know, the, the, it's a good thing for a president to engage with the, the press about matters of public concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that should be seen as within their official duties. However, I still would, I would still draw a line about based on what they're actually talking about. Right. And okay. so if, if, if the president is asked about um, his response to the coronavirus pandemic or about um, the, the, the pending legislation in, in Congress or about, um, you know, withdrawing troops from uh, places in the Middle East or about the peace deal in Israel. And he answers questions about that in a press conference about the way he is conducting his official duties as president. I, I, I think it, I think you're right that the, the 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 analogy to Congress would mean that the speech or debate clause immunity should extend to that just the same way it extends to um, Congress members who talk about the reasons why they're voting a certain way when they're mm-hmm. on the floor of Congress in speech or debate. But I still wouldn't make it that. Um, you know, the mere fact that uh, um, he happens to be at a press conference means that every every discussion um, becomes part of his um, official duties, because if he's if he's asked about whether he, he raped a woman, um, uh, then that actually, you know, raping the woman isn't part of his official duties. So talking about um, whether he raped the woman or not. Um, or whether she's his type or not, it's just it's just <laughs> yeah. a conversation that has nothing to do with any of his official duties. So I I, I agree with you that there's some room to, um, if 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 one is to analogize to the congressional immunity as I'm doing here to say that the press conference should in some ways be part of that. Um, but just like the congressional immunity has lines where um, when you get too too far away from the core um, lawmaking functions, then it's there's no more immunity. Um, I think the same with the president when, you know, talking to the press could be something that would bring up immunity. But I think only if he's actually talking about um, his 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 how his job duties or things that are related to his job duties. 
Well, and so now I want to take it uh, you know, to the next part of this, because I said there's kind of three statements that are, that are being um, uh, at question in, in the litigation. And the third one, so you have two occurring in the context of the press conference. And so we're kind of talking about that. But the third, and this is the one where there seems to be even more consensus that it could be falling outside the scope of the president's duty, is when he re- uh, issues a written statement denying the allegations uh, and outlining that it was wrong. As a matter of fact, that he does that in June. Um, and, and he says, quote, in the statement, quote, I've never met this person in my life. She's trying to sell a new book. That should indicate her motivation. It should be sold in the fiction section, end quote. Now, he goes on to other things in the statement. But see, that one's not in, in, inside the, the context of a, uh, a, a, a press conference. So how, how would you think about that one, Ken, that, that third, the, the statement released yeah. by Trump? Well, I think given what I already said about the press conference, where I don't even, I don't even think in the press conference uh, talking about that. So if it doesn't count in the press conference, clearly it's not going to count. Yeah, if yeah, you're... It's not going to count there. Yeah, I, I think that to me, again, think back about the justifications that the Supreme Court offered in Nixon versus Fitzgerald for why there's um, uh, an absolute presidential immunity from civil liability. Uh, what the court says is the reason that um, presidents don't have to be held accountable in state tort law if they do things that are official acts of the president, but are also tortious under state law, is because when the president is making um, decisions and and taking actions on behalf of the general public, um, uh, we don't want them to be um, influenced by um, personal liability under state tort law. And, and yet, you know, in Clinton, in the Clinton v. Jones, they tell us, but that doesn't apply if what the president's doing has nothing to do with taking action on behalf of the public. Now, if you think of that as the dividing line, you know, what what was President Trump doing um, where we wouldn't have wanted him to be influenced by state tort law here when he issued this particular press release? Mm-hmm. So th- because there's, there is no action other than he, the, the entirety of the statement is just simply directed just, toward Carol. It's directed towards her. Right. It's not it's not like the kind of thing where um, if you think of what Nixon did in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, he transferred around um, a, a member of the Navy and he closed Navy bases. Well, a president really does have to sometimes transfer around um, members of the Navy, and he does really have to close naval bases. And if he could get sued every time he did it, then that would um, influence his ability to perform his his job functions that he needs to perform to make decisions that he needs to make that, you know, always there's going to be someone who doesn't like the decision that he makes and mm-hmm. might sue him. And so and so the court says that's the reason he needs to have that uh, absolute immunity from liability when he does things like that. But I just can't see any way to apply that to what Trump did here, either in the press release or in the press conference. Okay, so now this is my so here's kind of my final take on this. And and, and this is really what I see as being William Barr in this case. uh, You know, we're we're talking about head of the DOJ, William Barr, just simply attempting to cover Trump until we get further towards the election. I, I, I just I don't see there being some big, meaningful grounds for the DOJ to do this. Other than that, it doesn't sound like you disagree with me on that front, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I, right. I think that um, I don't know if it's going to work, but I think that this is um, I think Trump looks at this whole thing and Barr looks at this whole thing as a win win that whether whether they um, whether, whether they're allowed to do this substitution or not, whether the whether the DOJ is is granted the the right to um, uh, d- d- uh, defend Trump or not, um, just the, the 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 machinations over it and the and the the, the motions that are going to have to be filed in federal court about it and um, that's going to take it past the election. That might be true, although I think some of the judges in some of these cases, particularly in the um, the the New York Attorney General's um, subpoena case for the tax records. Some of the judges are getting, you know, to be impatient with that, those kind of delaying tactics, and they're, they're moving faster. So we'll see what happens. Now, one last question, and, and then we'll need to move on to other stories because we've taken some time here. But <clears throat> assuming that this is, in fact, a delay tactic, I mean, it, it only delays it to the point when he is no longer president. So th- this would I mean he can still then be sued, even if, as I'm understanding it from you and the way that we've done it uh, that, uh, with Clinton uh, v. Jones is, I mean, this could come up again. And for Trump, this is much sooner rather than later, potentially, depending on the outcome in November. So. Well, if he wins big, he can't be sued again, because let's say he wins on all of his claims, mm-hmm. then uh, he would be claiming that um, not only can the DOJ defend him because he was acting within the scope of his employment, 
but also that um, because he was acting within the scope of his employment, that means that he gets the absolute presidential immunity from Nixon versus Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. So, so if he wins on that, um, that's, then he wins a judgment in his favor in the case. The case is done. He can't, and you can't, he can't move forward. Again. Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, we'll have to continue to watch and see what happens. And I'll be curious to see what you think when you get a chance to read the actual uh, court filings. Yeah. Um, the other big news this week, and this is one that I think I sometimes I'm always trying to pick things that listeners might have kind of flown under their particular radars. Uh, And that one is that the Congressional Budget Office this uh, week noted that we have a record deficit this year, $3 trillion. The U.S. budget has hit a milestone last month. That's for August, according to the CBO, with that $3 trillion with a T dollars in debt. That is $1.9 trillion more than the same period last year. And it is double the largest year-long deficit on record. As a matter of fact, according to the CBO, that puts the deficit at 16% of the gross domestic product, and it is the largest shortfall relative to the size of the economy since 1945, a very different era in time. Uh, and so, you know, one of the one of the things that many of us who are a little bit more conservative, I know that uh, Michael and uh, Ken, you and myself, we did a three-man episode way back in the spring when we were talking about uh, COVID, and, and, and we talked about, you know, it, it's a Keynesian world now. Uh, but is this an indication that perhaps maybe some of the more cautious voices, I'm looking at me, uh, suggesting that we, we have to think about this both in terms of spending and in revenue might be right, and that this is maybe a benchmark for that? Uh, what do you think about that, Ken? Well, you know, I am a Keynesian, and I will have to say, you know, it, 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 in isolation, it looks alarming that we have a $3 trillion deficit and that it's the largest since 1945. But I actually um, am not troubled by it because of the current circumstances of, of the country and the world. You know, it, it seems like, um, you know, as a Keynesian, I think deficit spending is appropriate um, in times when the economy is greatly depressed and the private sector isn't spending. And so if the government doesn't spend, then, um, then a lot of productivity will be lost. Um, I would also add that in, in this particular deficit, um, a lot of it is, you know, is really just straight up relief bills, like the, uh, um, the, the, the 600 a week that people got who became unemployed during the pandemic and the, uh, the, 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 the tax, uh, the $1,200 $1, advance that people got on their um, income taxes. Um, so a lot of that, I think, is really directly helping people um, in their lives. And so it has to be looked at that way. The Paycheck Protection Program as well, which was very expensive and which kept a lot of people employed. Um, so, you know, 1945, which you mentioned, you know, you could say, well, you know, that we were coming out of World War II and uh, that was an unusual year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would also I would also note that um, it didn't actually cause a bad economy. Right. The economy in the late 40s was good. Right. So the, the deficit spending um, that we had to get through the war and to begin the post-war reconstruction and things like the, you know, eventually the building of the interstate highways, um, that, that, that that didn't really hurt the country. I think um, letting, letting the economy shrink a whole lot uh, would have hurt the country a lot worse. And, and, and this kind of deficit spending in times of extreme crisis um, is the alternative. The alternative would be not deficit spending, but letting the economy shrink by that much. I think that could be worse. So now let's then put this in context to what's happening right now, because one of the the next stories we're going to talk about is, you know, the COVID spending. We have a lot of, you know, package follow ups. So, for example, you say, look, it didn't hurt the country because we were kind of coming out of that. But of course, since we're already hitting that number now, does this make the idea that we might need to think a little bit more conservatively moving forward than for you uh, more appealing? In other words, What's the what's the point at which you are spending into the trough and at which point are you you, you digging too far to attempt to come out of the trough or, or maybe you just don't think there is too much spending? No, no. I mean, the budget deficits were over 100 percent of the budget for for three or four years running during World War Two. So really, you know, um, uh, uh, much bigger than much bigger than now and for several years in a row. Um, and that's how we won World War Two. We wouldn't have won World War Two without doing that. Um, to me, it's not really about the size of the deficit. It's it's about the idea that um, you know you deficit spend during the during the during the, the bust, and you try to tax and make it back up uh, during the boom. 
And so I don't know exactly when the boom is going to start again. I am confident that it will start again because it always does. Um, but I think that, um, you know, if you look in the in the 90s and we've talked about this before, when the economy was doing really, really well and uh, and there were both tax increases and spending cuts, um, we got into a, a position where we actually had budget surpluses for a little more than a year um, where the deficit was eliminated completely. Um, and I think that's appropriate when you're in a boom and, and that then that can be financed without um, putting uh, too, too much of a hit on the economy. Um, but I think in a time of a bust, there's a tremendous human cost to not doing this kind of spending. And I don't really see what would justify that human cost. Well, I mean, you, you, of course, when you talk about those human costs, you are, in fact, buying the cost, as you note, down the road. Effectively, what you're doing is you're saying, well, I'm going to buy people uh, some stability now, but somebody has to eventually pay that bill. And, and so you point to the 90s as one example of where we had this kind of unusual combination, historically speaking, of increasing taxes while simultaneously uh, decreasing uh, spending. But that 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 combination has not been one that is generally popular because the parties don't get the the various things that they want and instead get blamed for the things they don't want to do. And so your only your only alternative at that juncture then is, is that you simply uh, deflate the cost. Uh, you in, excuse me, you inflate the cost of uh, the price of money. And, and as, as a result, you make children and children down the line, that they effectively pay through that in their decreased wages for the now. Um, so I, mean, I, I think you, you might, it seems to me that you might have a, a slightly, I, th- I think you're too likely to think that the 90s would occur again, maybe is what I'm saying. Well, let's think about the 50s then. So in the 50s, um, taxes stayed very high um, as they had been in the 40s for, for World War II. The top right, marginal I mean, tax the, rate in the 50s was 90, 91%. Yeah. But what's yeah. the likelihood we're going to have a 91% tax rate? No. No, but but all I was going to point out here is that that was done, you know, while spending continued to increase. Mm-hmm. So you could have an in- increase in spending and an even bigger increase in taxes. And I think a lot of people remember the 50s as a pretty good time. I, I think that's the time that Trump himself is talking about when he's talking about making America great again, right? Like it was great, I think, under those kind of a, a, a perspectives in the, in the 50s, right? So So if we actually have a boom, then everyone's going to do fine during the boom. And if the taxes are higher in the boom to pay off the debt that was incurred during the bust, you know, that that doesn't really drag people down because ultimately, if there's a good, strong economy, if, if people are getting, you know, if it's providing services like, um, you know, good, good infrastructure and, and good public education and good health care and things like that, and people have security um, because there's a lot of jobs then the fact that they may be paying high taxes at those times is not going to impair people's lives. But, but if, um, if you have times like this, when a lot of people are completely out of work and uh, um, really you know, living very marginal existences where they could fall through the cracks if they don't get um, the government in some way, either propping up their, their job through a paycheck protection program or just providing them unemployment compensation otherwise, um, then you know, the, the, the downside is, is much worse. The downside of not having that safety net um, at these kind of times is much worse than the um, than, than the downside of, of paying taxes at a time when people have good high paying jobs. Again, assuming that everyone is, is willing to pay the taxes, I mean, you're making the argument that everybody's going to be want to be rational about that. But that has not historically been generally the case. As a matter of fact, those tax rates don't remain in place. Uh, for long during the 50s. They come down as you get uh, into the decades prior. Uh, and so, what, in other words, what makes you think that everyone will then say, look, I'm going to pay for what happened uh, 20 years ago? Well, you never know what will happen, but the, the 91% tax rates that came in in the 40s stayed in until Kennedy cut them in the early 60s. Yes. And uh, he only cut them, to 70, 70, yeah, cut them down to 70%. Right. So we still had 70 percent top marginal tax rates. And then they did keep slipping down. But but really, they kept slipping down um, for a while at a time when, um, you know, the, the, the deficits still were not a big problem. Um, they became a problem again during the Vietnam War because of the guns and butter economy. And then um, but and, 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 and then stayed a problem for a while. But I think that's all kind of cyclic, you know, and it, 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 it's true that there's always going to be a political constituency to vote for politicians who promise to cut taxes. Um, but it's not true that that um, is always going to be a dominant national view. And, and that really... Um, well, George H.W. Bush the, pays for it. 
Well, he paid for it, but that's also because of who his constituents were, right? He, he, I mean, Bill Clinton never paid for it, and he raised taxes more than George H.W. Bush did. Um, and I think it's just because George H.W. Bush was a Republican, and Republicans really didn't like that. Um, when Bill Clinton did the same thing as a Democrat, it, 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 it didn't cost him anything, really, because uh, the Democratic voters um, didn't mind that. And, but and it they, also and came they, with him pushing through things like NAFTA, which pushed prices down uh, that made those dollars purchasing more. So, I mean, I, I, that might also be part of it besides just the, uh, the optics of it being a Republican. Yeah, well, right. But I'm, I'm saying the same thing here, that, that that's... Um, that's when you do it, right? I mean, Clinton, there were a lot of reasons economic times were good in the 90s. I'm not saying they were good because he raised taxes, but I'm, I'm saying it's kind of the reverse, that not only because of NAFTA, but also because of the um, end of the Cold War, also because of the huge amount of um, wealth that was generated by the creation of the internet, um, uh, also because we started having a lot more trade with China and a lot of Chinese investment in well, the United States. I'm glad you there bring that up. There's a lot going on. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because, I mean, again, we're seeing this in the same time as we're seeing a contraction of trade and, and the purposeful bringing up of uh, tariff barriers in, in bigger ways uh, and, and, and an agreement among the two parties, uh, at least among many wings, that that's a positive thing. You have kind of the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party who like it. Uh, and the uh, the Trumpites and the Republican Party who like it, which means it's unlikely that you're going to see that kind of circumstance again, meaning that, that maybe this again, that uh, this kind of deficit spending is probably a little bit more harmful, on, even on your your own analysis there. No, I wouldn't say that, because I, I think that although I would agree probably with you a little bit that um, the, the kind of trade wars um, that the U.S. is getting into, the barriers to trade. Are the, the net effect on the uh, economy is negative. I, I agree with you about that. Okay. But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't overstate that, that um, uh, that that's I mean, the really the reason our economy is in turmoil right now is because of the pandemic. It's, it's an enormously bigger uh, factor um, than 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 uh, uh, trade disputes. And um, and the pandemic is going to blow over. So the economy is going to recover. Um, so if you have one thing that's, you know, dragging it down slightly and another thing that's dragging it down enormously. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't worry as much about the thing that's dragging it down slightly. And, and we and, and I was just trying to say with Clinton, there were a lot of things that happened, but then that meant we had a boom. But that always happens. You know, things looked pretty terrible in America in the 30s when we had the Great Depression, in the 40s when we were spending so enormously on the war effort. But then the 50s and 60s gave us a pretty sustained boom. And I'm sure we're going to get back to another sustained boom. And so when you get to the sustained boom, that's when you worry about balancing the budgets. And uh and when you when you have the, the times of uh, extreme distress and when the economy would be shrinking otherwise, that's when the economy, that's when the government needs to step up and spend both to help people and so that the money gets spent and prevents the um, economy from shrinking. I mean, I, I, th I think on one level that we would uh, disagree about, you know, the, the, the kind of the Keynesian economics of it. But if we put that aside for a second, uh, I, I, I don't have a deep disagreement with you on kind of what you're saying. about well, look, well, why you have you can spend here if you're going to effectively save there in the, in the better time. I guess what, uh, what my fundamental problem is, is, is that I don't think that everyone is on board with the amount of saving, i.e. taxing, that's going to be necessary for this size of uh, deficit. And as, as a result, we're going to come out on the other side of a pandemic and find ourselves in a position where it is impossible to um, lower the deficit in a way that's meaningful, even during that boom time. Because I, I don't really think that people understand what that tax cost is on the other side. Uh, and and I, so I, th I think you're being a little bit overly optimistic that um, the state and the voters who elect, the, uh, elect Congress is going to immediately say, well, we're going to have to proportionally do taxes in the same way that we did uh, you know, post-World War II. And again, that's why I'm glad that you brought up, you know, the, the upper tax rate. So we don't have to argue about, you know, whether that's a good or a bad thing. But that is what it's going to take uh, or something close to it uh, to to reduce spending. And, and you seem to be pretty confident that's going to happen. And I, I, I don't well, I think you're wrong. Let, on that let me front. qualify I mean, that. OK, so let me qualify that in one way, then you, you might be right about that. But the uh, the the fiscal policy is not the only tool here. There's also monetary policy. And so, you know, right now. 
um, we're not really seeing inflation, right? It's kind of amazing to have a 16% budget deficit with, and not with have low inflation. inflation. Yes. Yep. Right. Right. And 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 so you know, I think under the under the the, the type of theories that worry more about deficits. Usually the evil that's being worried about is that um, they lead to inflation, but we're not seeing that yet. No. Um, and, and I think the reason we're not seeing that yet is because there's so much um, uh, unused capacity in the economy that, um, you know, that most most of the most of the um, problem now in our economy is is, is um, on the demand side. It's that there's a lot of people that don't have any money and can't buy anything. But but there's plenty of slack in the econ on the productive side of the economy. If 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 people could buy things, the economy could still manufacture things that people would buy, um, goods and services. So I think that's why we're not seeing inflation, even when we dump more money into it, um, because it's not causing shortages that would raise uh, shortages in supply that would raise prices. But if that does happen, and this is where you're going, that you're saying that'll happen eventually. If that does happen, then even if taxes don't go up, um, uh, the the Federal Reserve Bank could raise interest rates. There's other or could tighten the money supply. There's other kinds of things that can be it's done. It's kind of an invisible um, tax, is what it is, effectively. To, to, yeah. Yeah, but but it doesn't. Your your I think your argument was that the political will would never be there to raise taxes. But but it doesn't. Politics are not as involved in 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 the use of monetary policy. So if 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 the if the evil of deficits is that they lead to inflation, um, and if the concern is that you can never raise taxes enough in the political economy we're in to to fight that evil. Um, then I would say, but there's other ways to fight inflation that are much more hidden from the political economy, the the, the monetary the federal reserves, because they're a private, yeah, yeah. Or not, well, private is the wrong word, but yeah. But, but they're 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 less accountable to public politics and, yes. and by design, and that that's in order for them to be able to 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 do things like fight inflation, which always involves raising interest rates, which is always unpopular. Um, but the but the Fed can do it. They don't really have to worry about the popular opinion, and if 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 they're if they're sure that would serve the public interest and control inflation. And so I, I don't think inflation has to be such a boogeyman. I think um, that you know that's it's a concern. Nobody likes when there's tons of inflation. Um, but I think depression is a worse concern, and I think that's what we'd be in now if we didn't have um, the kind of deficits that we have. We're probably in a depression anyhow right now, but uh, not not as bad. And uh, and I, and, I, and I do think that when you take into account all the tools that all the, the branches of the government have, including the Federal Reserve Bank, to use fiscal policy and monetary policy to fight against inflation, um, I, I don't think it's completely Pollyanna-ish to say that, that um, <laughs> inflation can be dealt with you know, when, when it comes. Well, let, let's kind of let's launch from there and head back to the poly uh, the, uh, the politics side, uh, which is that the, on Thursday of this week, the Republican majority was unable to pass a so-called skinny bill for coronavirus stimulus after it fell short of the necessary 60 votes to overcome a procedural filibuster. Um, all the Democrats, uh, Democrats, president and Rand Paul would vote and he was the lone uh, Republican would vote no on the spending bill for very, for very different reasons. Uh, Paul, because he thinks no more spending is going to be necessary. Um, and Democrats, because they didn't think it was enough spending. Um, what would have happened is that the legislation would have enhanced federal unemployment to $300 a week, which had been ended at $600 a week back in July. It also authorized new small business loans, uh, COVID-19 testing and vaccines. It did not include any additional direct payments or payouts or importantly for Democrats, um, state or uh, government local um, payouts to, su to support their budgets. Uh, and so I, I know, Ken, you know, we had talked about this extensively. You weren't a big fan of the direct payout anyway, um, although that has become a kind of a, a rallying cry for Democrats, along with state and local governments who, who uniformly this week says no. Um, and Mitch McConnell says in response, quote, they can tell American families, meaning Democrats, that they care more about politics than helping them, end quote. Um, because of the uniform support against the bill. I'm, I don't always uh, agree with McConnell, but he kind of seems right on this one. If you think you need more spending, even if you don't think it's enough, why universally vote it down? Uh, do you agree? Do you, are, you, are you with the Democrats on this one, Ken? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm with the Democrats. Really? On this one. I didn't I, think I, you would? Yeah, okay, yeah. we're going to get in. Fine. I, I think we actually talked about this once before. I, I think I told you that the Democrats would not agree to another bill unless it restored the 600 uh no you, now you did but that doesn't necessarily mean that you would have agreed you know yeah. once you got halfway there so i didn't realize that you yeah. would okay continue oh, yeah i i, I agree predicted with that, that though yeah, yeah. I, I think that the, the the reason i agree with that strategy is um i think that first of all um 
the the McConnell did uh, pull a bait and switch on on Pelosi when the CARES Act was passed, and so it's actually necessary to to retaliate for that and not let him do that again. I mean, he, he did. He, <laughs> it's he did necessary. Promise. It's necessary. Right? So, wait, 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 wait. I have to ask about this. So. Yeah. So effectively, we just got done talking about the deficit spending and the need in the midst of a potential uh, yeah. a, a crisis to increase spending so yeah. that these, these things won't happen. But that is not as important as, as, as getting an, an even one because of a slight to Nancy Pelosi. No, it's not to Nancy Pelosi. It's to all of the uh, Democratic voters in the country. Um, and and I, I think that it is it is more important because so it's, so in other words in, in one situation we shouldn't let them suffer but in this one we should halfway tell well, me I'm let, curious let, I'm really yeah. yeah all right so let me start with a um, uh, um, by re- rehearsing what actually happened re- remembering what actually happened here right when they did the CARES Act there was supposed to be a second CARES Act and and McConnell agreed to that right and so the 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 pitch was you know that we're putting certain things into the CARES Act now. Um, and, and then, you know, cause this is the stuff we can all agree on and then we'll get back and, you know, the stuff we haven't agreed on yet, we'll, we'll figure that all out for the second CARES Act. And that very much included the, um, aid for state and local governments, aid for the post office, um, things like that. And, uh, um, and based on those representations, you know, the Democrats all supported the CARES Act with, with Pelosi's support and, and, and went back to all the constituents and said, um, you know, we're, we're. You know, we, we got the stuff done that we all agree on and we're and we're going to keep working on the, the other stuff. But 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 McConnell, um, you know, clearly had no intention of ever working on the other stuff and never did. Um, and so that was a basis by which he was able to secure something that was a bipartisan agreement. But then it wasn't really bipartisan. It was mostly a Republican bill. Probably the only Democratic thing that was actually in it was the six hundred dollars for unemployment insurance. But everything else in it was a Republican bill. Um, and so I think, you know, given that um, that was part of the basis for doing the, 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 the CARES Act, that still has to be the predicate for doing the next round. And if he's not going to get back to things in the next round now um, that, he, that he said would be in the next round before, um, then I don't see how you can go forward. It's, 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 it's really the same kind of dispute that caused the government shutdowns over the wall. But they have they're the ago. minority party. Like, they're going to have to compromise. I mean, he is not the, the minority party. The, the Pelosi's the Speaker of the House. No, the no, House no. Is, I mean, in the Senate, yeah. because you got to get oh. both sides. So in the Senate, McConnell yeah. is in the majority. So, I mean, yes, Democrats might want more of their own bill, but yeah. okay, they don't hold the Senate. So they're not going to be able to get that. It's not going to happen. So no, they, hold the, they hold the House. So right. McConnell can't get anything Democrats don't agree to either. That's absolutely so, right. Right. So, I mean, the logic of this is there's not going to be a bill. And I, I told you that last time we talked about that, that there's not going to be a bill. But I think that's the correct outcome. Because that, see, that um, was the part that surprised me. Right. So I, yeah. not that not that the, the prediction part, but that you, that we didn't talk about that part. So continue. Yeah. 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 I think that's the correct. There can't be a bill. I mean, suppose there was something like um, let, let, I mean, no, this wait, is I just mean, fanciful. I mean, OK, so let's let's say here we are, you and your wife and you're trying to decide like you, you've bought this car. Right. And, and you've paid for half of it. And you still got to pay for the other half. And you tell your wife, you're like, look, I, I'm just not going to pony up all. But I think I, you know, I'm, I'm going to pony up for maybe a quarter of it. Now, she could tell you that that's dumb, but you're at least getting closer to what you thought that you wanted in the meantime. Yeah, but this isn't getting closer to what Democrats wanted. Let me, let me give a well, better... It's half, oh, of, it's I think, half of what they want on for, uh, for Let me for give you, I think, what's, what I think is a more apt uh, metaphor. Um, let, let's say that um, the, 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 the Democrats have a bill that says, let's give uh, everybody in the country $1,000. They and have, Republicans, they, yeah. no, I'm just saying, I mean, yeah. this is fanciful. I'm oh, saying, okay, okay. Let, We're not trying yeah, to do a real one. Fair, fair. Right? Let's just say fancifully that the Democrats say, yeah, all it um, is is a thousand dollars. Gotcha. It's a thousand dollars. And the Republicans say, well, we've got an idea. Let's give all the Republicans in the country a thousand dollars. And and not everyone, just every Republican. Um, now, one way you could look at that is say, well, then they've both actually agreed that all the Republicans should get the thousand dollars. So let's let's just give all the Republicans the thousand dollars and then worry later about what we'll do about the other half of the population. Um, but I think you can see why the Democrats can't agree to something like that. Well, right? but now in this case, though, you're talking about we're, we're t- specifically the linchpin of the skinny bill mm-hmm. was to try to get unemployment up. 
And mm-hmm. so they're getting three hundred to six hundred dollars. So by voting no, what they're effectively doing is that they're ensuring that anybody on unemployment is getting zero of the dollars when they could have at least gotten three hundred of them. Now, if you're the Democrat, though, you say, "Well, look, if I'm either going to get them six hundred, I'm going to get them nothing." Yeah. But from the Democrat, from the Republican point of view, they'd already come up. So I don't see how Democrats either a win politically on this, but two, I don't, I still don't understand your normative claim here. That that's somehow a, a better outcome solution. Well, to say, well, I can't get everything I want, but I'm at least getting part of the thing that I wanted uh, well, in a time when I'm in the minority the in the Senate. Democrats are getting none of what they want under under that Republican bill. So why should they go for it? Well, they're getting half of what they want on one of one of the th- uh, three items. But they don't want half of what they want. That was my point right. of the metaphor. Well, of course they don't want it. I mean, nobody wants part of what they want. That, yeah, that's yeah. true. Nobody wants part of it. Right. Um, that's why I was trying to say you could say that if the Democrats wanted to give a thousand to everybody and the Republicans only wanted to give a thousand to Republican voters. I think the better analogy uh, would be they'd the only Democrats be like 500 to everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but but I think that the, this bill is filled with um, it also had poison pills in it. Like it, it had provisions in it that said that um, uh, employees couldn't sue um, their employers for forcing them to work in, in unsafe workplaces, which is definitely something the Democrats don't want. And it had provisions in it um, uh, for um transferring more money out of public schools and into private schools, um, which, again, is something Democrats don't want. So this is something that has some poison pills in it that would force Democrats to vote for really, you know, unrelated things that they don't want. And I think it would it would also have um, given, you know, more money. um, I mean, not that the Democrats are against the Paycheck Protection Program, they're for it. But I think that is one that serves Republican constituencies more than it serves Democratic constituencies, because small business is mainly a Republican constituency. Um, and so, so I, you know, I think there's a lot of things in the bill where there's just more in it for the Republicans than for the Democrats. And I don't see any reason that the Democrats should go for that at all. That's what they went for the first time around. And the House of Representatives um, is half of the Congress here. So the, the, the Republicans are going to have to um, play a little fair. And I don't think it's harmful politically to Democrats to come up with nothing here, because all these individual Democrats are going to be able to go back to their constituents and say, I did vote for the $600 bill and it passed. And the, and the only reason that we don't have it is because McConnell and the Senate won't take it up. So what we really need is to get Democrats in the Senate who will pass the same bill that the Democrats in the House already passed. If there was any other Republican in the White House, Democrats would suffer in the uh, in the senatorial election. Uh, I mean, I I, I I deeply disagree on your on, on the take that Democrats are going to win from this, that they're going to easily come back to their constituencies, especially in some of those battleground states like Michigan. Um, where Democrats are, are even in this particular environment with this particular um, really weak top of the ticket uh, president, um, because it's just it's simply too easy to say you could have had three, you didn't take it because you wanted six, and, and, and that's an e- that's an that's a, that is an easy ad, that is an easy explain. The one that you're suggesting there requires a lot of thought, even, even if one takes all the positions in. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think I think Democrats will have a better go of it because of Trump, um, because because Trump is just such a disastrous paperweight of a top of the <laughs> ballot. Right. Well, um, but, you yeah, know, I, I think in a, I think in a more, you know, in a more neutral uh, circumstance with president, I, I think this is disastrous for Democrats. And, and for, for Sen- yeah. I mean, we can have a different argument about what happens with in House races. Um, but at least for um, uh, Democratic senators. Also, Trump, you mentioned him. Uh, another aspect of Trump here, of course, is that um, I think Trump sabotaged McConnell here as well, because he he actually executive ordered the three hundred dollars out of the um, uh, FEMA money. Right. So people are, in fact, going to get the three hundred dollars until um, oh, when does that end? Just about around the time of the election. Yeah, it's it's is it the end of October? Yeah. So, so this the concept that you're talking about, you know, that they could have had 300, but now they're going to get nothing because the Democrats held out for 600. I don't think that's how people experience it in their lived lives. They are going to get the 300. Maybe I, you know, I, you know, we don't generally have such uh, a, disagree- a, a disagreement. That's uh, that's fun. I, I feel like a lot of Democrats, including me, are you know really wanting the Democrats to be tougher and not to be rolled. And I think that that's generally what the Democratic constituents are looking for, and they'll be satisfied that that's what the Democrats are doing here. 
So in short, you needed a little bit of the tough guy Trump to come over to not, not in the negative, right? But that, but that idea we're not going to roll over anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. We'll have to talk more about that on the show, but we are quickly running out of time. And so I want to take us to uh, uh, our last segment. Uh, and that is what we've been reading. Uh, and, and Ken, you were telling me that you're reading something about Scientology. So why don't you yeah, tell us I've about read, your... I've read books about Scientology before and I'm doing it again. And uh, um, there's a new book uh, called Battlefield Scientology by a journalist named uh, Tony, Tony Ortega. Um, he's been covering uh, Scientology for a variety of publications for about 30 years. So I'd say he's, he may be the most authoritative journalist on the subject at this point. And he just put together this compilation of a lot of his, his different um, news reporting on it that's already been published. And there's some new uh, news reporting on it that's only uh, in the books. And um, I always find it um, interesting to read about them. I think they're a very sinister organization. And uh, so I've been enjoying reading this book. Oh, that's well, you know, Scientology in and of itself, the way that has, it has attached itself into celebrity dumb is, um, is that, does that book capture any of that? Because I've always wondered about that aspect of it. it, more so than other new religious movements. It really seems to have gravitated toward a certain class of people. Yes, well, that, um, I mean, that was an explicit strategy of L. Ron Hubbard's when he was alive. Um, you know, it was it was part of Scientology policy to try very hard to recruit um, celebrities. So that's that's been um, one of their religious tenets for the whole time Scientology's been around. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hubbard's been dead since the I guess early '80s, but they they carried that on. Um, and the the book is mostly more recent news reporting. It's not historical reporting on things like that. But um, but there is um, a, a section of it that's more recent reporting on. Um, the, some of the celebrity Scientologists like Tom Cruise and, and Kirstie Alley and people like that. Um, and uh, um, so that, uh, that, that there is up to date reporting on, on their roles in Scientology in the book that I'm reading. But you'd have to be reading other books to sort of go back further in history and find out how they got so interested in um, recruiting celebrities. Now, so for me, for the uh, for the reading this week. It has been hard. I'm teaching one of my favorite classes here at Oklahoma Christian in the fall, uh, and it's contemporary political ideologies. Uh, it's it kind of gets away from math and that kind of stuff for a while to uh, really get to kind of dig into thinking about the way people think about politics and specifically then want to take action items. So it's more than it's not political philosophy, but how does that kind of come into practice, which is an ideology, the, the action item of a, a political philosophy potentially. And so th this class is always dangerous for me, Ken, because I'm having it's an undergrad class. And so I'm always having them read uh, bits of the primary texts uh, for. And so it, that, that just gets me to go deep into them. And so I have like 13,000 different uh, <laughs> books I've been reading too much into. Uh, once again, I've been reading uh, Nozick's Anarchy, Utopia in the State, uh, John Rawls, The Theory of Justice uh, and uh, On Liberty, just to name a few. But the one that I'm going to point out it's actually a, it's a kind of a sleeper hit. Um, it's called Contemporary Theories of Liberalism. And it's a really great overview of the different variants of liberalism um, in between classic and modern and, and kind of getting deep. So this, again, so for listeners, if this is something you're going to seek out and take a look at, I forewarn you, uh, this is probably the least easily read book that I have ever recommended or article that I've ever recommended. But it's also probably one of the most rewarding if you're if you are interested in getting deeper into how does how does liberalism and ideology fragment uh, and what, what different kind of various now, now Geis, the uh, author, he ends up with kind of a, a libertarian proposal at the end, but his book is worth the price of admission just for the overview of all the different kinds of liberalism. And he just has some really succinct ways of summing them up. So it is uh, the contemporary theories of liberalism uh, is what I've been uh, kind of, it's not guilty because I'm doing it for class, but that's what I've been, what I've been reading. Well, Ken, it's been a lot of fun, and thanks for uh, suggesting uh, Battlefield Scientology. And I want to thank everyone for listening to The Politics Guys, all of the hosts, myself included. We really do love working on this show. I know for me, it's something that I love. I look forward to it every few weeks. And But to make that all happen, it takes support. It takes support from listeners like you guys. 
and one of the ways that you can support this show, The Politics Guys, is by subscribing to our podcast app, or excuse me, subscribing to the podcast on your app of choice. It is incredible how big of a deal that is for you to get those pushed out to you regularly. So does hitting that share button on your iPhone, uh, shooting that out to others. If you've enjoyed the show, please share, take a moment and share this episode with a few of your friends and have them have a chance to find out why Ken and I finally disagree on something. Who knows? Uh, we really support that. Um, we also just need your direct support. One of the great things about being a supporter of the show is you get access to our supporters-only content, uh, and that includes our full-length supporters-only show, which comes out every Wednesday. As a matter of fact, for this Wednesday's show, uh, Ken and I are going to be taking listener questions. You guys had a ton of questions, and some of them, I mean, just really thoughtful and really well-researched. Uh, I kind of felt like I was reading a student paper. So we're going to try to be answering those as best we can. And so I'm really looking forward to sharing that with all of our listeners. And if you'd like to get that show too, uh, all you have to do is to become a supporter. And you do that by checking out our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash politicsguys. Or you can go to the Politics Guys uh, homepage, which is politicsguys.com slash support. So join me and Ken again on Wednesday for that listener's questions show by heading to patreon.com slash politics, guys. If you've got your own question for us, comment, correction, or just some random thought you'd like to share, there's a lot of ways you can reach us, including at mail at politicsguys.com. We also strive for civil and rational debate on our Reddit at bipartisan politics. And we're also on Twitter at Politics Guys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Morano, Andra Masker, Nathan Saransky, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkinson. Today's show was produced by myself, Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us then.